Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to today's show. Today, we have Pete Newell, the CEO of BMNT and the co-founder of the Common Mission Project, which is the organization behind Hacking for the Fence. Pete, welcome. Hi, thanks, Rob. Glad to be here. One of the first times I heard your name was in regards to the Army Rapid Equipping Force about 10 years ago. So I'd love to hear in your own words a little bit about your, your history with that organization and maybe some of your lessons learned working with the ARIA. Yeah, coincidentally, I retired 10 years ago this last week, this week, something like that. I'd surprise some days. I've been retired for 10 years, at least from the Army. You know, the, the best thing I can explain to people is, you know, the rapid equipping force was not a job I was ever designed to have. So I, I you know, I grew up as a, as an enlisted tanker and then as a, you know, uh, an infantry officer in the Army, and I spent the bulk of 28, 29 years, 29 years doing that type of stuff. And it wasn't until, you know, the, the great personnel system of the Pentagon, you know, trying to help me out, landed me back in the DC area when, when all the jobs were gone and. You know, the guy who eventually became the chief of staff of the army was, was trying to take care of me and wanted to make a general out of me. And there were two jobs left <laughs> and neither were, were great jobs. And one of them was being the executive assistant to the army G3. And the other was the director of the rapid equipment force. And, and the guy who was the army G3 at the time knew that I would hate being the executive assistant to anybody. And so by default, I became the director of the rapid equipment force. And, and quite frankly, I, I had to Google it. I literally sitting in Iraq, Googling it. And the first question came to mind is what, <laughs> what happened? I went from four star, going to take care of my next job to, you're now the director of the rapid equipment. I, I seriously thought that I had been waylaid. Yeah. And it turns out, I say that because it turned out to be one of, if not the most professional awarding jobs I'd ever had. I just, you just couldn't convince me of that in the first year and a half. The, the fact that the ref director had, you know, a letter that, that essentially allowed him to sign a shortened Juons that turned something into a requirement that allowed procurement people to spend their dollars doing things was, was amazing. But I didn't know anything about money. I didn't know anything about acquisition. I knew a little bit about DC because I spent some time on the Pentagon, but I really, you know, and I'm not a scientist by any means. Like I said, I was completely the most ill-suited person in the world for the job. The, I guess the fluke here though is I came off the battlefield, you know, not with a chip on my shoulder, but with a great understanding of the problems that weren't being solved. And when I realized that General Crowley's words to in my first counseling session, because I worked for the vice chief of staff of the army and it, it, it Crowley in his own very special way, looked at me one day and said, if your plan is to come into my office once a month and blow sunshine up, I bought about how great things are. And all the cool stuff you're doing, you might as well stay home. So your job is to go find problems in the army, put a band-aid on them as best you can, and they come back and explain to me how it is the army didn't solve that problem the way they should have. I said, your job is to help me make the army better. And then he followed that with, which means you're going to piss off a lot of people. And just know that, that I'm back here, but your job is to get out there and do things. Um, so, so with that in the back of my mind, I kind of looked sideways at ref and said, you know, 
all this cool stuff you're putting out on the battlefield is interesting, but you're not helping the yeah. army. You're not putting any pressure on anybody. You just you're the the escape valve. And and rather than building teams around things and making the the S and T and acquisition folks and the requirement riders work better together faster, you're just you're just relieving all of them of any responsibility in doing that. And and in my mind, that was not Ref's mission at that point. So Ref got re reimaged as a problem generating organization. And they got reimaged as a team building organization so that, that we could actually find and describe emerging problems faster in a language that people understood, which allowed us to recruit teams of people to those problems and then build pathways by which we could actually deliver the 50% solution, 70% solution, or 100% solution, and then transition that stuff to somebody or kill it to follow along. And it, you know, quite frankly, we got so good at that process that, you know, on a $120 million budget, we eventually invested or spent, depending on how you look at it, you know, $1.4 billion in a two-year period. So... The, you know, the, I don't want to say the lesson in there is trying to preordain who an entrepreneur is and what they do is kind of a smoke show. I mean, some of it's based on experience, some of it's based on passion, some of it's based on risk, but it's a process and it's really hard to figure out who the natural talents are unless you throw them in the deep end and see who can swim and who can't. For folks in the defense world, and, and just the same as it is in the investment world, if you have an idea for the solution to something but can't build a team around the idea, it's time to kill it. So trying to force something that, that is an unnatural act or that nobody's interested in is a waste of your time and energy. Now, part of the, part of the job, though, is becoming a better storyteller so that you can actually convince people that you're the right person to work with and that you're working on the right thing. And if you do, you know, if you do that, it's pretty easy to get the team built. And, and sometimes it's even easier to get the money, you know, you need to, to do what you need to do. That's a very long answer to your question. Oh, it was perfect. One of, the, one of the aspects of this that I find truly fascinating is, is you know, the, one of the statements you used was, you know, go find problems. Can you talk a little bit about what that looked like at the time and what are the similarities or differences with, you know, within the defense department compared to maybe the commercial world and trying to find problems? Yeah, I, I think the, there was a chart somebody put out about, you know, the rapid acquisition system and where it needed to compress and do things. And in my experience is everything was the requirement was the thing that triggered anything happening. And the challenge was, is nobody could talk about what happens before you define a requirement. Every, every, and even today, the entire system starts with there's a requirement. And nobody would say, well, well, what did you do to find the problems and the operating concepts and the stressors that led you to understand that that's the requirement? The, you know, being on the battlefield, we run into problems all the time and we solve them with whatever's at hand. The, the challenge sometimes is, and this is particularly true in Afghanistan, I found the rapid equipping force outpost in Afghanistan sitting next to the division headquarters. And the ref got their direction from the division. You know, here's the staff document said, here's our priorities, here's what I do. And, and when I hit the battlefield, I realized is that there's a lag time between something changing on the battlefield and then actually percolating up into the division headquarters far enough to actually change somebody's priority. And sometimes it was a matter of months and other times it was years. 
before realized, you know, somebody realized something dramatically different was happening. And we can use the case of, you know, that when a surge started, 2011, 2010, 2010, when the surge started, the Army and actually DOD was, was in the midst of a, you know, $1.5 billion program to put MRAPs on the battlefield. Worked great in Iraq. But the president of the United States didn't send mounted units to Afghanistan. He sent dismounted units. And Afghanistan was not Iraq. Those dismounted units, but they're talking about donkey trails and in rice paddies and villages and cities where, you know, the alleyways were four feet wide. They're all dismounted. So just just a strategic change that, that led to a tactical outcome of we're not driving on the vehicles anymore was a major change to the the operating environment, which which nobody counted on except the Taliban. We said, I can I can build really big bombs and occasionally take out an MRAP, or I can build a thousand little bombs and kill, you know, ten or fifteen Americans. And the Taliban says it doesn't matter. I get the same press no matter how many I do. So it's much easier to, to go after the dismounted guys. That that one change kind of negated everything. But you know, when I got to Afghanistan in you know the fall of twenty ten, countering IED attacks against dismounted squads was not on anybody's priority list. Yet over a nine month period, we've gone for one or two of those attacks a month almost nine hundred. The lag between that environment changing and us recognizing that it changed and finding a suite of things to put on the battlefield to start to negate it cost us almost 5,000 casualties. One of the things you recognize as you start looking at problems is there is a cycle speed. You know, you can look at the OODA loop and say the OODA loop of the U.S. Army in Afghanistan was about 18 months, no, 28 months. It took us almost, you know, 12 months to realize something had changed. It took us another 18 months to deliver solutions to it. Now, by acquisition system standards, that's, that's flipping fast. The Taliban, on the other hand, were on an eight-month cycle. <laughs> They change their patterns every eight months. They change their triggers. They change the system. They change whatever, which meant you could never define a requirement to perfectly fix something because you weren't moving fast enough. So, so when I say being problem centric, it, it causes you to do two, you know, two things. One is you have to be focused on actually understanding not just the problem, but the context of the problem in terms of the technology wrapped around it. How fast will that change as people adapt to it? And then you actually have to search for solutions that not only solve the problem, but pathways that will deliver that solution fast enough to get inside the OODA loop for the person that's using it. Now, you know, out of curiosity, you know, very, you know, one of the things that strikes me as almost frustrating is how the military is able to operate at one speed at war, yet when not obviously engaged at war, it, it doesn't seem to be able to operate at that same speed. Do you think your no. approach at the REF could be successful if it wasn't on the front lines? As I was leaving in 2013, I actually wrote a long document about the future of Iraq. And it's unfortunate that the guy that followed me and the leadership around him didn't take it to heart. Hey, and I think the central premise of it is we're only to war. We're never not. You just have to figure out where the battlefield is and focus your attention on that. Had reps stuck around, imagine the difference they would have made in Ukraine earlier on. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and even tonight. Now, I mean, it, it's, it's called the rapid equipping force for a reason, <laughs> because it's really, really well formed for not just finding problems and finding solutions, but actually equipping people with them and all the other double PF stuff that went with it. So somewhere on the process of building AFC and you know, the army application plan and all the other stuff, they, they forgot what the actual mission was. When people get enamored with, I'm going to do innovation and they're all about the tech and we're going to get new tech to the battlefield exit. Um, I gotta tell you, man, that's so much work. Um, you can look at China and say, you know, we lost the first several battles with China when, when they started building islands and we did nothing about it. And we really lose to China every day that they build manufacturing capacities that, that are, you know, faster than ours. So, you know, the answer to your question is, could it? Yes, absolutely. I think we're seeing some of it because, you know, I spent so much time with each of the innovation units that have stood up and, and impressed upon them the getting outside the gloss of, of the innovation for the sake of doing innovation and talking about truly doing mission acceleration. And if you look at what people are trying to accomplish and realize that they have to do it at a faster cycle speed than they ever have before, just to keep up, not to get ahead, just to keep up then then you absolutely have to start to change the definition of a requirement or when you use a requirement versus doing discovery and moving a requirement to the tail end of the innovation pipeline rather than the front end. But you also have to start to invest in all the activities that generate the volume that you need. And then most importantly, you have to invest in a framework that is defined by the decisions that need to be made by step by step by step trying to get through that so that people understand what the output of the activities is supposed to be so that you can actually judge whether they're, they're useful or not. And I, and I will tell you, I mean, that, that's one of the things that Ref was really good at is being super self-critical. And we looked at every step in the delivery process from finding a problem to delivering at the battlefield. And we graded ourselves on a number of days, something spent in a step. We also graded ourselves on, you know, for instance, I had a priority list of about 10 things. Those 10 things were backed up by, you know, 20 or 30 problems apiece. But we didn't just invest in solve one problem for one thing. It was give me counter dismattered IEDs, IED attacks. And there'd be a list of problems associated. And we would pursue a whole bunch of potential solutions and eventually boil them down into just those solutions that were the most impactful that we could deliver in a timely fashion. And everything else went back to the shelf. And so I learned a lot that, that helped me make better decisions about the things that are going to go forward. That's, that's not part of the acquisition system today. You know, the, the DOD, you know, 5,000 series does not recognize that nor, and even when it does, the, we have professionalized efficiency over effectiveness and we're rewarding the wrong things. There's a time and a place where you have to absolutely be efficient with the use of the resources you have at hand. There's also a time and a place where you have to be super effective. Both of those things have to coexist. But as you said, in wartime, we're all about effective. And, and we will, we'll absorb some cost and we'll absorb some performance just in order to get a solution out there. In a peacetime, we go right back to knowing you have to be superficial and we're not interested in effective until we need to be. The problem is you don't teach people to be effective without them getting experience. So, so we trend towards building systems that are grading people on how efficient they are rather than 
building systems that give people experience uh, making risk decisions about being more effective in the application of the things we need. That's, that's the part that's missing, you know, from the junior level on up uh, within the ranks of the, the military. Just hearing you talk about some of the things that you're doing at the RAF, it's, it's apparent that you, you practice a wide variety of different processes and techniques that are, tend to be popularized in, in Silicon Valley and other places, you know, customer discovery, value stream mapping, lean manufacturing, yep. lean startup. When you were put into the, you know, the, that director role. Did you already understand those things? Oh, did <laughs> no. Like, at what point did you see the overlap of the the things that you were doing from a day to day perspective to the things that that you know have have now been you know really popularized and and how startups approach problems? It was a slow process. Um, one of the best advice I got when I took over the rest director, I'm talking to. Mm. Pete Palmer is a retired one star who, you know, at the time was working with, oh, not no, General Dynamics, I think. And Pete came into rough one day and he was just talking about the transition. And, and he looked at me and says, you know, <laughs> Pete Newell, you are an expert on warfighting. And there's nothing anybody has left to teach you about warfighting. He was, on the other hand, you don't know squat about business. And, and his recommendation, and I took it to heart, was he said, you got to get out of this building and learn what it's like to run businesses, build businesses, sell things, buy things, and then do the rest of them. Um, by a fluke, I don't know what I was looking I was looking at a financial document at Ref and I saw something. It said learn for sixty thousand dollars for MIT LL something. And I said, "What? It was for sixty thousand dollars? What is this?" And it was funny because somebody had to leave the room and go ask somebody because nobody knew what we were spending sixty thousand dollars on. And they came back and said, "At MIT, you have an industrial liaison, which means we can." We can send questions to them and send people to them, and they'll go find people in Boston area who are the experts that appeal to them and talk to you. Yeah. And I was, I said, that's great. I'm going to Boston next week. And, and I showed up in Boston, and the, the industrial liaison was a guy named Charles. And I, and I swear, Charles was like five foot two. And he was the most fascinating person I'd ever talked to. I mean, he's, he had already built and sold two or three businesses. I mean, I think his last one he'd sold for like a billion dollars. He got bored after that and went to Harvard and got a law degree, but he really didn't want to practice law. He was 40 years old. He, his wife had just had like twins or something, and they were like under the age of two. And he says, I'm trying to figure out how to be a father. And, and I, and I don't want them to do so. I'm I'm just helping people at MIT. And and Charles and I spent I don't know probably two days talking about the current problems at Ref. Now he started flipping through his Rolodex, and and we meander all over Boston. And I'll talk to people at Boston Dynamic, Kinetic North America, the and I'm not just talking to biz dev guys. I'm talking to the the scientists and the engineers and. You know, I will tell you that probably half the people that he introduced me to over a two-day period, I still talk to today. I mean, that's that's a fascinating connection at the speed of we understand problems, you understand problems, you understand the tech, and we can we can work together. Eventually, I ran into a guy named Peter Hurst. I think Peter is still there, who ran MIT's executive education program. And I sat down with Peter. I said, you know, here's another Peter. Here's what the advice I was given. And with that advice, what what would I do? And he he proceeded to call out these these executive courses that you ought to come to MIT and sit in. They'll help you 
not just get the material, but they're going to connect you with business leaders from all over the world. So I, I spent a year, probably, probably 15 months. Once a month, I would go up to Boston and I would sit through a two day executive leader training course. And, and one of the two things happened. One is I learned that the problems and the processes business leaders wrestle with on a daily basis are very similar to what Ruff was doing. And what I had experienced as a, a tactical commander in the military. The other thing I learned was the language was completely different. So, so even though I would go up there and be intimidated by the business leaders and they own all their stuff. And it's like the first time I hit one of the simulations, you know, it was about an airline that had grown up and blown up. And it's like, I get this exactly. This is nothing but logistics and movement and doing and, and things. It's really easy. But the language was so different that I, you know, I didn't expect that I knew what it was talking about. And the third thing I realized is that although the things we were doing were similar, my experience level was probably 10 to 50 times higher because of the number of times I had done it. That's still true today. The, the experience level I had solving problems far outstripped most of the executives that were around. And in fact, it, it was Steve, Dr. Steve Spear, Steve Spear, who's still a good friend of mine, uh, still works with BMNT, um, was the guy who sat me down and said, you know, I wish you would talk more in class because you have more experience actually going through this and you, than, than most of these people, and you're doing a highly stressful situation. So I, I learned a ton about, I would say, the mechanics of business by sitting in those executive classes. Later, I, again, by fluke, I, I ended up at Stanford in a five-day design thinking course taught by Bob Sutton, Heidi Rao, Jeremy Utley, and I forget the other guy. There were two D school guys and two business school professors. And again, there were 60 executives from around the world, but, but it was kind of focused around design thinking and business and things. And, and, and I bought it, you know, Klein and Sinker. Design thinking is going to save the world. Uh, until I realized that, that it was a component of a component of a component, not, not an end state. But, but between the two, I spent a lot of time drawing out the process that should exist in parallel with the, the acquisition system. And I still have that, you know, it's still called the, the REF innovation process is, is essentially version one of the innovation pipeline. They're very similar. When you pull them up, like I talked to you about how one turned into the other. Um, there were some things missing that, you know, long story short, it wasn't until 2015, when Steve Blank and I met by accident that all of this came together. That, and, and I was in the middle of doing something for a client under stress, and, and one of the students I was working with came in and said, hey, you ought to talk to this Steve Blank guy. I've taken a class to him, and he sounds just like you. <laughs> I said, can, can that wait a couple of weeks? And he said, oh, by the way, I told him to come down tonight. So in walks this short gray-headed guy, you know, 30 minutes later, I was like, you know, crap, I, I don't have time for this. So we sat down for, you know, a 20-minute chat. And the next thing you know is we're both on the driveway's walls, him drawing out lean and me drawing out this ref process. And we got done. The drawings were almost identical. The only thing different between the two of us was the wording. And the, and the start point, I started with problems. He started with potential solutions, but that conversation went on for two hours, 20 minute meeting went for on to two hours on dry race board between us. And we still do the exact same thing tonight. Uh, it's like we never stopped. So MIT, D school, running into Steve Black. The other thing that happened was 
Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao were writing a book called Scaling Up Excellence. And I highly recommend it. If you've never read the book, Scaling Up Excellence by those two, it's worth the time because what they were looking at is, is how you build high-functioning organizations. Steve Spear writes about high-velocity organizations. These guys were writing about how do you scale up inside an organization, this process of excellence over and over and over again. You know, I continued to, to talk to them. In fact, they were standing up, first they're writing in a book, and then they wanted to stand up a class and, and kind of teach this as a case study thing. And Joe Felton, I ended up teaching the first class. So the precursor to H4D was actually the business school thing that we taught. But about the time I retired, they hired a case study writer. Now, I spent six months with a case study writer going over everything that had ever been done at REP. And he interviewed everybody from senior leaders to people who are, but the guy wrote this beautiful case study that you can still find it's scaling up excellence, something, something, but it's a Harvard Stanford case study that became the seventh chapter of the book. So MIT, D school, Steve, and this case study really put a box around all these processes and help help me and, and help the other folks around me actually see what the process actually was and how we could articulate that to other people and turn that into a scalable process that other people could learn to adopt. You may have to answer, you know, ask shorter questions, but, but you know, so I, I mean, at the end of that, that's what really led to the, here's why we do what we do, because, you know, we've had so much experience and cycled through so many of these things that we know the framework works and we know the discipline works. The question is, can you teach it to other people and, and get them to adapt it enough so that it gets into the organization so that they can use it to get their organization to adapt to the reality of what they need to do. So for somebody who might find themselves in similar position to you, you know, there was a lot of almost lucky encounters. It sounds like before you eventually, you know, essentially found your own journey to, to what you need to know, to be effective at your job and, and for the mission. Um, what recommendations do you have for folks uh, that might find themselves in similar positions? I, I know you, you mentioned the book, Scaling Up Excellence. Are there other books or are there other courses? Is there other organizations that you think they should be involved with? You know, there is, and I, I think someone being the two site, there's a really good list of things that we recommend people read. The first thing I'll tell you, you know, to copy Steve Blake is get out of the office. Get out of your building and go talk to people you have never met before. Talk to your customer, talk to your client, talk to your leaders. Find other people who have worked in this space. Not just talk to them, listen to what they have to say. You notice that I spent a lot of time in Boston, but a lot of time in Stanford. I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill learning about money. And it really, I'm going to say the first year and a half at REF, I spent getting an education. And, and I call it a practical education. Is I spent, I had a guy who understood how money worked on Capitol Hill, and he took me to the professional staff members who wrote the NDAA. And then he took me to the professional staff members who wrote the, the Authorization Act. And then he took me to the PEG folks that actually apportioned the dollars in the Pentagon, all the way down to the people who crunched the numbers that sent MIPRs. The reason I spent, you know, $1.4 billion is largely in part because I built one of the best financial teams that the Army had. They were fantastic. And then I built one of the best teams, not in managing contracts, but actually finding contracts <clears throat> out of the building, found other people, found what motivated those people to do things and figured out how to bring them together as teams for a short period of time to actually get something done. Notice I said, found what motivates them to get them to come together as a team to get something done. And then I used my, my office, my apparatus, my money to answer those motivations. 
And that's largely the practice that the BMT continues to lead today for large organizations, just teaching people how to do that, giving them practical experience while you coach them through doing it, and then helping the organization scale that behavior. So it's a continuous process that continues to feed on itself. This hurts stuff. Starts with getting out of the office. Over the last 10 years, what do you think are some of the things that the, the DOD and federal government have gotten a lot better at? And what are the things that you think we've either are just starting to scratch the itch at, we're, we're getting wrong, or, or even in some cases might have even taken some steps back? I've gotten better at, I, I think we're no longer talking about innovators and entrepreneurs as insurgents but actually as a necessary part of the organization. I think we finally recognize that something has got to change. Although the distance between recognition and action is still too great. I think we have seen an appreciation for the grassroots efforts, whether it's, whether it was the spark cells that AppWorks was building or, or AppWorks or, you know, the Dragon's Lair in 18th Airborne Corps, things that, so, so I would say we are suiting people, institutionalized grassroots, entrepreneurial responses to stress and harnessing the body of people to actually solve their own problems rather than wait for the bureaucracy to do it for them. That's a good one. I think the fact that Nate Diller left AppWorks and became a professional staff member in Congress was a really positive sign. The same with Eric Lofgren leaving GMU and becoming a professional staff member. A really good sign because their titles have the word innovation in it. It's a really positive sign that had a conversation with you know, Representative Adam Smith, the, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. He sounds like I do. In, in terms of how fast he can articulate the problem, it's like, wow. I, and, and the same with, you know, the committee chairman, Mike Rogers. It, so before there was, people look and say, what are you talking about? Now it, they sound like us. So all that's good. I, I think that's good progress. I, I think but. We lost a lot of ground, and I, and I use DIU for an example. You know, DIU was stood up in front of a brass band and couldn't function for a year and didn't function until the SECDEF stepped in and said, okay, staff, you did it your way, now we're going to do it my way. So DOA 1.0, not a great thing. 2.0 worked pretty well, and then the SECDEF left, another SECDEF came in, and suddenly the IU is part of RNA. Man, just not the right direction. So the recognition that the DIU needs to report to the SECDEF was great. However, we wasted four years getting it back to where it should have been. And we really didn't put it back because its budget and its people and its processes are all still embedded in RNA. All they did was change the reporting line. In that same 10 years, we, we saw the demise of the Army Rapid Equipment Force, the rise of the Army Applications Lab, and what I would say, the demise of the Army Applications Lab. AFC is still trying to figure out what it's supposed to do. AEL is still kind of lost. Kessel One got stood up, and Kessel One's fighting for its life. The Army Southworks Factory kind of doing the same thing. The AFWorks has been through a couple of cycles, but, you know, out of AFWorks, we actually got, you know, the Office of Strategic Capital. So I would say, you know, the, the people who have been part of those organizations continue to work to make things better, and I think that's a good thing. Um, so that's part of the goodness that have come out of the, the process over 10 years. The part that 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 is most glaringly a failure is there is still no doctrine for what we call mission acceleration. 
And without doctrine, you'll never have a set of rules and policies and other things that are different than the current system that are professionally taught to people who then experience them so they become good at it and actually have a job to go to. Without a doctrine, there are no resources and there are no positions that gave you an equal setting all times. So the, the biggest glaring is, is there's no doctrine for doing what we say we know is a strategic imperative. We simply continue to invest in band-aid changes or micro-changes to the federal acquisition regulation, which, by the way, is not the problem. The requirement system is the problem. A financial system is a problem. The FAR is good for what the FAR was designed to do. That's not this. So it's time to quit talking about changing the FAR and create a new system that sits alongside it that has somewhat of a symbiotic relationship that changes all those dynamics so that they are better suited for the dual-use nature of the type of thing we're playing with. So that, that's what the heart of what Steve Blank and I and Joe Felter laid out with the roadmap for Congress was it's time to reorganize DOD. Why don't we just say that? It's time to reorganize DOD so they do this. And I'd love to dive into, you know, you mentioned an innovation pipeline. You've mentioned, you know, this, this new doctrine and this new system. I'd love to, you know, spend a little time just having you at a high level kind of explain, like, what are the key principles and concepts between this, this new doctrine, this new system and, and sort of our current approach? Yeah, first and foremost, a uh, doctrine will lay out what the, what the relationship is between innovation and warfighting. What's the result of innovation? What are you looking for? We have defined that as mission acceleration. So I guess you know, I can go into whether it's a DOD entity or DHS or somebody else and look at the innovation book to say, whose mission are you accelerating? And what are you doing to actually do that? Why? So, because you know, you, you, the, the biggest problem is you have all these innovation activities that are producing things that aren't appreciated by anybody else because they're, they're not actually being used to do something significant for the organization. It's all nice to have stuff, but the organization can't seem to make the change to embrace it. So, so we have to define, so doctrine helps you define things. Innovation is not invention. An innovator is not necessarily an entrepreneur. No, so, so first and foremost, the doctrine, you know, assigns definitions to all the words that are thrown away and thrown around and, and used horribly. It'll define the purpose. It'll also define where the organization would sit inside the framework of, of the Russian warfighting. And I use this example with the tactical forces armies, you know, what if Mission acceleration were a warfighting function, just like fires, intel, command and control, logistics, and other things. Well, if it were a warfighting function, that'd be a staff function. That's something. Whose job it was to look at all the warfighting things that are going on and figure out where they could accelerate the performance of those things in order for the organization to accomplish this mission better and faster. Right now, the system is designed to make the system work efficiently and, and not find more effectiveness out of it. If you had a doctrine, you obviously would need an education system to promulgate that doctrine and teach people about it. So rather than people, you know, confusing design thinking with an end state, they would understand that the the innovation framework that we've laid out, the innovation pipeline, accounts for all those activities and teaches people when to use design thinking versus agile versus scrum versus discovery versus lean. How do you bolt all those things together to get something done? 
And it teaches you these are the activities that you can best do in order to use those methodologies to get the data you're looking for that creates an insight that a senior leader needs to make a decision about motivating something through the process. That doctrine, doctrine drives language, drives culture. You want to change the culture, you have to have a language to insert to help people do that. You're not going to get that done if you don't start educating people and giving them experience in doing it. So what do you see with as the, the next steps or, or blockers in, in that? You know, I, I have heard from yourself and, and Steve Blank that at least parts of this seem written or in draft form, you know, at least some early concepts. You know, how do you see that progressing or, or what's sort of missing from, from making that doctrine official doctrine? Some of it is, you know, first and foremost, I say the, the Transportation Security Administration is the first federal agency to actually write and issue an innovation document. It exists, and, and it's fascinating to watch because the administrator himself is the guy who got up and said, we are going to do X, Y, and Z, and he draws the education process. So they didn't just write it and issue it, that they're actually educating people. And it's starting to permeate throughout the TSA, all the way down to their individual spark cells that are in the airport. So fascinating to watch. Because now the whole organization knows what the purpose of that spark cell at LAX is versus a one at IED versus someplace else. Um, doctrine's a hard one because... You know, people immediately, you know, they look at this innovation thing and say, well, that's, that's a foreign acquisition. That's A&E, that's RIS. Well, the doctrine writers all work with the joint staff or somebody else. So, so that this is the secretariat versus uniform services. Who's supposed to write the doctrine that drives a change of behavior of the acquisition system? We're not coming together at that level to admit that we need to do that. There are some great, you know, great things being done at the Naval Force Graduate School versus the Military Academy, the Air Force Academy, at Stanford, and, and, and a bunch of other schools where the the fellows that are going through these places are starting to get this and are starting to have an impact because they're sitting alongside senior leaders poking them with a stick saying, you know, we really need to do something. I, I think, you know, the only because I spent a lot of time with the Navy between the CNO and, and the Secretary of Navy's office and the operators, there's a great dialogue going along on, on how to institutionalize the innovation pipeline, who the organizations are, who the jobs are, what the what the boards are, what the process is, or what they're going to do. You saw a lot of that with Task Force 59. Task Force 59 successes actually are an output of, of some events that happened a year before. A series of events that happened a year before. It's just people got really focused on how we're going to do this. The question we put to the Navy leadership is that's great, doing Task Force 59 was helpful. How do you scale that to do more 59s, but more importantly, how do you scale the success of the 59 so that they actually become operationalized? What's the next step? That's the part they're wrestling with right now is, is how do we do both? Not just repeat that success, but actually take the, take and pick winners from that and actually start the to operationally deploy them so that the rest of the service can catch up. How do you see the, the DOD continue to evolve over the next 10 years, specifically in, you know, from a threat perspective, as our attention kind of shifts from, you know, uh, efforts focused within the Middle East or to potential concerns with China and Russia, how do you see things evolving and changing over the next 10 years? I, I think that, you know, first and foremost, we're always surprised by where conflict actually starts. 
And then we're surprised by how fast a minor conflict turns into a major conflagration that, that sucks in the world. You know, you saw that happen with Desert Spring. And now you've seen that happen in a near peer competitor with, you know, right on NATO's doorstep with Russia and Ukraine. So the first thing is, is to acknowledge that we will continually be strategically surprised by things that happen. The, the other one is to acknowledge that although the Chinese can't eclipse us in military capacity today, they are on a trajectory that will. And even though we're improving our capabilities, our trajectory does not match theirs. Which means that once they eclipse us, it will be really hard for us to ever catch up again. And, and that goes all the way back to the defense manufacturing base, the defense innovation base, and this whole nation concept for capability building. They've sorted out the whole of nation thing. We need to figure that out. Not necessarily copy them. We need to be better than them. If, if we hope to not get run over by, by the Chinese train at some point. That, that's, that's in the next 10 years, but then it's usually painful. And in regards to AI, do you see it as a iterative improvement from a software technology perspective, or do you see it as fully transformational in how the military gets involved with conflict? I, I think the, I'll answer a different question. So I, I think so far DOD has completely missed an opportunity to apply AI in an environment where it will free up human beings to do things that human beings were meant to do. So had DOD rather than invest in, in science projects that still don't see the light of day but invested in I think, reducing paperwork, reducing contracting processes, tracking supply chains, managing all those things. Imagine how much free time the workforce would have to actually get after the really hard problems we need to focus on. We're just now starting to see people start to change like, hey, we really need to, to get AI to solve some of these problems. But, but it's not, that's not sexy, but, but once you realize that it, it, you know, the amount of money we could save in, in just workforce hours is, is incredible if we would just commit to doing it. The other AI stuff, who knows, you know, AI is, AI is on the hype cycle and I'm curious to see what falls off versus what sticks, you know. It does cute things with pictures and it does cute things with videos and it does, it produces papers and it, and it does some things, but for, for AI to really take off, it, one is it, it has to solve a problem and there has to be a business model around how it does. So solving the business model side of the use of AI is a precursor for actually scaling the use of AI. I mean, you can look at the, the companies that, that sold themselves as um, being big on AI and, and look at their, their slow demise over the last five years. Well, they're having a hard time because, again, I can get a contract with DOD, an IDIQ, but I can't actually get money on it. How many times have you watched that happen with a software company? Every time. As you mentioned, acquisition and system process. Yeah. What advice do you have for those more junior members who are working within their own units, trying to solve their own mission problems and just struggling through the current system? Yeah, the first is two parts. One is just do it, get experience. Don't shy away from an opportunity to get up on the stage and, and actually pitch. And it's not pitching the solution as much as you, you want to pitch your thought process. Here's the problem. Here's why it's a problem. Here's the magnitude of the problem. Here's a pathway to solving the problem. And here's, here's what I need. 
And it doesn't have to be something army-wide. As a, as a brigade commander in Fort Bliss, Texas, more than 10 years ago, I used to take all the new officers out for a run. And on the course of the run, I would stop at a bunch of different places. And at the time, you know, my brigade was, was based out of Quonset Huts at East, you know, Fort Bliss Airfield. There was nothing out there. It was like being on a farm. There was no gym. It, it, was, it was horrific. But I would stop in this one particular company area where a first sergeant had, he'd gone out on telephone poles and cables and other things, and he had built an outdoor gym using construction debris from around post. And my point to people is solving the million and a half dollar we don't have a gym problem is mine. But you don't have to wait for me to solve the, the one-year problem for you to start solving the problem. The problem is your soldiers need upper-lower-body workouts. You don't have to wait for, for somebody else to solve that problem for you. You can fix that. Or at least make progress within what's, what's in your own means. I use that example for people that, to, for younger people to say, stop trying to solve stuff for the Army. Well, there's a ton of things at your, at your fingertips you should be working at that's at the right experience level for you that will give you the right touches and feedback so that you can do that more frequently. Over time, you'll get the confidence to take on more complex things. The other is get an education. Yeah. Got to read, got to talk to people, and you got to keep up with, with what people are actually doing. One of the things I admire most about you is, is not only the mission impact that you've had during your time in service, but the mission impact you've had following your time in active duty military as really a veteran founder and entrepreneur. Do you have any advice for those, you know, veteran entrepreneur types or, or even those people that are, are maybe still either in active duty or civil service or even a traditional government contractor role? and looking to possibly transition into starting their own company or maybe even just joining a startup? Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> Being and becoming an entrepreneur is hard. It is hard, hard, hard work. It requires a degree of passion that causes you to place things that, that you all do at risk. Your family, your finances, your mental health. It, it's not one different from being in combat. When, when you realize that, that, you know, you got a payroll to make and if there's no money coming in, you're going to have to figure out how to make a payroll or fire people or something else. So being an entrepreneur is hard. It is particularly rewarding when you get to the far end of it yeah, and, and actually figure out. So I, I think the, you know, the advice I have for people departing service that are thinking about things is. Being a small business owner is the same as being an entrepreneur. And this country was built on the back of small business owners. If you want to own your own life and be responsible for and be able to reap the rewards of your work, own your own business. If, if that's not in your psyche, don't try and fake it. It's not good for you. Go to work for somebody that does that. And there, there are lots of really rewarding things, and it's not an end state. You know, it's the same counsel I gave my son when he was leaving service. It was, you know, first and foremost, don't, don't go looking for a job. Just go talk to people, and eventually the job will find you. And he landed really, really well. And now we're talking about what's next. But I've encouraged him to stay with the company he's in because he's getting the most fantastic education and what it's like to scale a company and scale products and produce things that will pay off when he decides to go do his own thing. So, so one of us is looking for those opportunities to, to actually get the education and get the experience you need to actually make a good decision. But. But the two is, 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 is you're separating, is trying to organize your life and that of your spouse and children and other people 
in your finances so that you are trying to move from a stable platform to, to do some things because that gives you a little bit of freedom to maneuver. In our story, my wife and I laugh at this because it was 10 years ago, just a little over where I sat in Palo Alto as we were trying to make the decision to, to move there with no job, no company, um, not a whole lot of money. And, uh, you know, I really badly wanted to do it. But when I was sitting in the stands of, you know, Stanford's track, watching a track meet or something, I was just like, the rent in a house here is like seven grand a month. And and that money will be gone in a year. And, and I think, to wife's credit, she, she said, listen, if you really want to do this, we're committed to, you know, our, our youngest son being in the same high school for four years in a good school. What's the worst that can happen? We'll move into a two-bedroom apartment. You know, we'll do what we have to do. I'll tell you, with, without her saying that and acknowledging that that's what we were willing to do, I would never have been able to get BMG off the ground. In period, you know, first, I used all the money that I made consulting individually to, to get BMT up and running. And then I went out, I went without a paycheck for a year in order to pay other people to come to BMT. Worked out well, but but I could not have done that without the basis understanding within my family of what we were willing to do. And even then, I will tell you, it was hard. It was just there were a couple of really hard years early on building BMT where where everybody was stressed. So I, you know, it's it's probably a longer conversation for folks who are thinking about getting out and doing things. Is is first is get some experience, but the two is get right in your own head and your own family cycle about what you're taking on, if that's what you want to do. This isn't a place that you can fake it. As, as you well know, but you really have to get up and deliver every day. Absolutely. The last question that we ask all of our guests is, is why should people continue to listen to this podcast or even more specifically, you know, what is the power in learning from other people who come before you, their lesson learns, their insights, you know, a lot of their wisdom? You know, there's a lot of power in people's stories. And I really, not just me, I mean, and everybody is, I for one encourage the people who work for me to tell, to tell a good story. You know, throughout BMT, and it, it, some of it is the story of your life and experiences counts. One is to help people understand you, but two, there's so much other people can learn from what you're doing that they learn to apply to their own life. And if that helps somebody, that's a great thing. But the process of telling your own story will teach you more and more about what's important to you. So, so when I listen to podcasts, I listen to all kinds of different things. I have a penchant for entrepreneurs who have fought through really hard times. So to me, even amongst my really close friends are people who own businesses, you know, a few of which came from the military, but most who have gone through rather traumatic periods in their life, which led to the epiphany of what they wanted to do. And then it was the dogged pursuit of actually doing that, that, that made them who they are. Those stories are invaluable because you start to recognize that in yourself, but you also start to recognize what I would call the signs of weakness. What are you doing that, that's wasting that incredible talent that you have? That, that could be better channelized into the getting the goals that, that you want. That's why y'all listen. And I'm sure this podcast will be no different than, than the others. It'll be a fantastic opportunity for people to learn from, from entrepreneurs and others that, that are part of this, this vicious cycle of helping the country better, better, safer place. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for your time. I know I personally admire you and your career since I first came across your name probably about six years ago, both at Hacking for Defense and BMNT and the case study that you mentioned with Raf, truly somebody who I've admired for a long period of time. 
I've learned a tremendous amount from your stories and your insights. And I truly thank you for taking time to, you know, share some of your wise words with us on this podcast. Well, uh, Rob, I appreciate you taking the time and I'm, I'm glad to see another generation of folks stick to it and, and continue to, to do things. So I'll say like, you know, Steve Blake and I are long in the tooth, but you know, we're, we're over 60 yeah. and we need some of you under 40 folks to, to pick up the gauntlet every once in a while. So, so thanks for doing it, Rob. Well, thanks, Pete. And for those listeners, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.